Welcome everybody to another episode of the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and for those of you that may be new to this show, during every episode, I sit down and get to know people that inspire me with their passion and drive to protect and conserve the ocean. So today's show is a bit of a milestone because it is my 10th episode produced on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And one of my favorite things about serving in this role is learning about the countless ways that my guests are working to care for the planet and raise awareness about how climate change is impacting ecosystems, human health, and communities. And I am thrilled for you all to get to know my guest today for many reasons, but a major one being that his work pairs a couple of my favorite things, which are art and conservation. So Daniel is an environmental artist based in New York City, where he works predominantly with plastics and other forms of debris to bring significance to things that are seemingly insignificant and raise awareness of the plastic crisis that we are experiencing around the globe. Daniel Lanzalotta, thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Jenna. Uh, Thank you, Tyler, so much for having me. And before we get too far into the conversation, let's pause for a brief message from our sponsors. We have three sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that keep us alive and going. Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida, a firm dedicated to the restoration of dune systems with native and natural uh, plants, led by Frederic Barisette. Very good company. Find them at dunedoctors.com. And Coastal Engineering Consultants, headed up by our good friend, Michael Poff. They are out of Naples, Florida, and you can learn all about them at coastalengineering.com. And LJA Engineering with 28 offices in Texas and around the Gulf of Mexico. Outstanding coastal engineering firm led by Bill Worsham in that section. Uh, Find them at lja.com. So I want to take some time before diving into the conversation about your artwork to get to know you a little bit better. So could you start off by giving me and our listeners some insight into your life story and what some of those pivotal moments that led you to be where you are today are? So what are some of those big um, life-changing moments? That's a, that's a really incredible question for me uh, because I grew up in the Bronx in the uh, borough of New York City, part of the mainland. And so where when I grew up, I was a very, very free child. And I had the greatest, greatest experiences growing up where I grew up. And I, I spent a lot of time by myself making things and going to the lots and finding stuff that was, I didn't know at the time, illegally dumped. And so I would build bicycles and go-karts and make swords. And I, I had a vivid, vivid, vivid imagination. It was, it was endless. And my supply was endless. I didn't know that I would take this journey with ocean debris. But it stems from that place in the Bronx. But I also didn't know that outside of this world that I grew up, I called it the dead zone. It was, it was in the corner of where Westchester County begins. And Westchester County was affluent, but I was, I was in the corner of Mount Vernon and Yonkers, uh, very similar to the Bronx. And there was a lot of, um, of, of uh, in the Mount Vernon side, there were a lot of black people. And I went to grammar school there uh, in, 
as part of my upbringing. And I would go in and out of these neighborhoods. And my own ethnic, ethnic background is uh, interesting. Uh, so I come from a diverse background. And I grew up not knowing any of the issues outside of that world. I didn't know people didn't get along. And till one day, I did. I was the kid that wasn't supposed to go to college. I went to Carnegie Mellon University on a full scholarship. Uh, I was told I couldn't do that. And I did. And I did that also with cooking school. And I always took what was impossible and made it happen. And that's what, that's what my art is about, bringing significance to the seemingly insignificant, seeing where other people can't see. So when I give a lecture, I teach people how to see things and understand what value systems are and how we apply those value systems to objects and why we're in the mess we're in. And so my journey begins in the Bronx from very humble parents. And there is a code of ethics that we grew up with and values. And that's what I take with me. And that's what's in the work. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff. It's about feeling things. It's about the smiles that I get. I have, I have experiences wearing my art. I wear my art every single day, four or five pieces, the brooches and pins and what have you. And I could tell you it is mind boggling. And what I think is so beautiful about what you just said about your upbringings in the Bronx is that your experience growing up in the city is directly connected to sparking that passion inside of you for creating and eventually, um, you know, using everything that you've learned um, to create and through the art world and the food world to uh, push forward messages about conservation and sustainability. And then I think about my background, which probably could not be any more diff- like more different. I grew up in you know, rural Maine. Um, I mean, just north of Portland, so it, it's not as rural as Maine can get. But you know, a lot of my experiences were spent outdoors um, in the woods and hiking um, and, and out in nature. Um, but I think the most amazing thing is how two people can have these completely different experiences um, and end up in the same place. And that is so much of what I try to get to in this show is to have a conversation and demonstrate how it doesn't matter where you're from. Um, if that passion lives inside of you, there are so many different avenues for you to take to get to where you want to be, whether it's in the conservation field, whether it's in the art field, whether it's in the culinary field. I agree. My, my, I, I, went, I wound up living in France for a several years on the on the ocean in Biarritz, France, just literally minutes from the ocean. And um I spent a lot of time there and that's where my that's where the journey really begins actually making art because I would sit there with my son who was three years old at the time and I would sit and I would make things while he played. But I didn't know that I was going to wind up uh taking a stand for the ocean and waterways and the environment in general uh at the time. And so I had rules about what I was making. I can only use my Swiss Army knife. I can only use the stuff I found. And it was very, it was really un- incredible that um, this stuff would fit together. And it was fascinating. I still have all the original pieces. My son's 25 years old now. And 
I started to take stuff home and then I would go to the beach by myself. Then I would take very long walks and I would go from just below Bordeaux down to St. Sebastian and I would see the same trash over and over and over. And I start questioning it. And that's when my journey began to start to, uh, I planted the seeds to become a self-appointed environmentalist. And I'm also a self-appointed uh, social anthropologist, but my background is in in, uh, in theater arts production design from Carnegie Mellon, and in the, and in that training, when you when you study theater the way we did at school, and take play analysis, and and take play analysis in a very very deep way, every play is a cosmos of the world and personalities and 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 you know the the plot, subplot, and how, how people interact. And you, you get to sit on the outside looking in. That's, that's part of being a social anthropologist. It's also part of becoming aware and, and understanding the dynamics of human beings. So this is a very important aspect of who I am in the work. Uh, and so I, I'm not a scientist per se, but having that background plays a major role in my work. And so I, I take that work and I start looking at Gestalt principles of design and what that means and functional fixedness. And I do a whole thing with functional fixedness and with kids and showing them a baseball and asking them what a baseball, what this object is. And from that, from that place, I'm speaking not about the artwork or the environment, but I'm asking children and PhDs. I've given, I've given classes to 160 older men white men for the most part in Westport, Connecticut, a very affluent community here in Connecticut, and what this baseball is. And everyone believes it's a baseball. And functional fixedness says that it's a cognitive bias to what an object is. So I translate that concept to what what is this object? Oh, what is that human being? That baseball is more than a baseball. So everyone, every single person I've ever asked, I've been doing it for several years now, believes it's a baseball. In that baseball, I, I suggest that maybe it's not a baseball. Maybe it's mittens. Maybe it's a pair of uh, socks. Maybe it's a sweater. Maybe it's a ski cap. Every good baseball has yarn in it. And I deconstruct the skin of the baseball, and I take the yarn out, and I've had people knit things for me. And people go crazy when I show them what's been knitted from baseballs. I've done this in the South Bronx. I'm going to be doing it here in Bridgeport on the 23rd of March. In, in a, this is all inner city stuff. That you're not the package you come in. You, you're, we're more than the package we come in. And so for me, my journey in looking at the environment was like, okay, everybody else, recycling. I was into recycling, recycling, recycling. And then I start looking at the recycling in a way, the famous word, there's no way. And how, when you want to feel good, you buy yourself a Prius, but your garage is packed with 4,000, you know, items of plastic. And there's, there, there's the Fisher Price swing set that's made of plastic. <laughs> I had a rope in a, in, a, yeah. in a board and that's gone. That's disintegrated since then. The Fisher Price toy sets, those all those plastic things are going to be around for at minimum a thousand years. These are gigantic, gigantic things. I take garbage walks in Brooklyn, New York City, and Connecticut on a regular basis. And it is phenomenal what is out there. And that stuff is going to be with us. So this journey about functional fixes and what the baseball is, is fascinating because the kids go cuckoo. 
and and this this translates across PhDs in the city schools in the South Bronx and in North in in uh, New Haven uh, in the city schools in New Haven where I've given the class. Uh, it's it's fascinating to see that people can't see. And what I love about that point is, I mean, you're exactly right in that. You know, I'm not a scientist either, and we can't all be scientists or else we're going to be really extremely limiting ourselves into what we can accomplish in spreading awareness, educating people, getting people involved in the conservation field. And so like that baseball, art is, you know, it's another form and another tool that we can use under that umbrella of conservation to help you know, gain awareness about it and get people involved and curious about plastic pollution. Um, and, you know, folks that maybe are not signing onto the internet and reading academic journals, or they aren't um, able to attend college or some sort of higher university. It's just another way to be inclusive and help spread that message about conservation and plastic pollution. So I think that's, that's so beautiful that you brought that up. Well, the thing is now, when when I went from recycling and feeling good about things and putting things in the blue bin, I realized, well, it's consumption. It's consumption. It's consumption. Well, it's not. It's not consumption. It, it's part of the problem. So as as the world becomes more and more consuming, and where countries are moving up the economic scale, they look towards America and our habits, and they think buying more is a great thing, while we start shifting our consciousness here. So it's it's very kind of an interesting thing that's happening here, but in other parts of the world, say in Asia, where economies are booming and people want stuff. So you see in those countries, the amount of plastic in the environment, or in Peru, or in Haiti, or in the Dominican Republic, these countries are consuming like crazy. And so I went from uh, the away idea, to recycling, to the uh, consuming. And then I then I had this kind of idea about, well, we're in a spiritual deficit. And I started thinking about my childhood. My mother would say, if you go up the stairs, take something. If you're coming down the stairs, take something. And that transcends to a lot of things, not just the laundry. And how do you apply that idea to other things in your life? Basically, she's saying, get something done with your time. And so I started thinking about this idea, the connections that you have to objects. What are the value systems that you have to these things? So I could buy something in Maine that's exactly the same thing I can buy in San Francisco, in 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 Texas, in Miami. It's it's becomes it's so mass produced and so insanely fast how these things are produced. Uh, I went to a convention in the Javits Center in New York City last summer. It was all I a uh, AI driven with robotics or plastic production. And it is so fast that it's mind boggling. So as the environmentalists and the conservationists are trying to get things done and we have to go do a study, which is a two year study, the, the AI industry and the robotics industry uh, in cahoots with the fossil fuel industry, they're, they're, they're producing widgets in 24 hours. You have an idea, it goes to a CAD system, the CAD system sends it to a 3D printer, the printer prints it, they refine it, they make molds, it goes to a manufacturer somewhere in Asia, and it's on a ship. Well, we're arguing about what's going on, about how to fix this. They're, they're flooding the environment with junk. 
And Absolutely. I'll even throw fashion into that example too, you know, where they're producing at a rate that's faster than we can pull it out of our, our ecosystem. Right. That, that, that AI, that AI uh, technology and that, those robotics are the same things that can cut fabric, you know, one foot deep and so I mean, it's it's all it's all part of that. So that that became very concerning to me. So um, after studying it a little further, I realized that plastic debris and what is debris and what is litter? What is litter in the environment? What is waste? So I see a lot of it. I see so much of it in certain neighborhoods and places that I go. And I am I am dumbfounded by the insanity of it all. And what I realized that what litter is and waste and garbage in the environment at any level, of course, anything, of course, all socioeconomic you know, strata, it is a fact to me that it's that I don't love myself. It's it's about a mindfulness about who I am as a human being. If I am not in touch with my loving myself first and fixing me first, and then applying that to my brothers and sisters, whoever they may be, gay, straight, black, white, Jew, Arab, doesn't matter who it is. I have to fix my relationships with humanity, with women, with any, whatever it is. We have to fix ourselves as human beings first before we can even apply this idea to the environment. Because you're asking people to go out and clean a beach. I'm all for that. I've cleaned many beaches. But in reality, when a, when a government, a current administration, is so cruel to children at the border to take them from their parents, how can you expect people to respect the environment? Absolutely. And that's, I think, something that I struggle with every single day. And I would be willing to take a guess that there are a lot of listeners out there that feel the same way. Um, When you're out there messaging about environmental conservation, and then you have a mass shooting, or you have everything that's happening on the border, or, you know, you could go on for probably hours listening, listing all of the, the issues that we have going on that are so much bigger and seem, you know, almost impossible to solve. And, um, you know, and then we're coming in and messaging about the environment, but a way that I think about it too, is yes, we do need to fix ourselves and focus on taking care of ourselves and our community. But within that is the responsibility to take care of the planet, because at the end of the day, that is our home. And without it, nothing else that we deal with matters because we won't be here (laughs) and that's that's my point while we're arguing about social situations racism homophobia uh whatever it is uh that humans are, are having these fights or debates about the planet is melting it's melting and 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 so we could do all the arguing if we're not fixing the environment. It's it's a very very um, stressful thing to see. When I see a river that's just gushing with plastic bottles, say in Peru or in Haiti or Dominican Republic, which I saw some footage not so long ago along the coast there, uh, you've seen all this footage. Uh, it's 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 so disturbing to me to think that 
we're not outraged by this or turtles or straws or for me it's the disposable lighter uh my my store is a disposable lighter i mean i find these things like all over the place i'm building a sculpture right now utilizing those it's going to be a, a stunning it's going to be nine feet tall wow. eight to nine feet tall and it's it's gonna it's just off the charts the the concept of it, the look of it, and how it will unfold and be what it is. That little item alone is so toxic and so insane that to me, I, I can't even believe that people can be so bold to just throw it into the environment. It's plastic. It's got chromium plating, heavy metal plating. It has butane. That's a, that's that's a fracked fossil fuel, and that breaks. That there's no disposable lighter that goes into the environment that's empty. There's always some amount of fuel left in that. I see crushed ones. I see them sitting on on the grades of storm drains. Uh, they're they're everywhere, and they if they're getting run over by cars or stepped on or broken in some fashion somehow. On land, those are, those are off-gassing. They're they're toxic as could possibly be. That's a major major toxicant in the environment, and I don't I don't see anybody being outraged by it. And it seems so big, you know, um, ubiquitous to the environment. Oh, it's just the lighter. It's just this. It's like the plastic bag. Oh, I, I only use one bag. Yes, but there are one times a billion people. That lighter is being used all over the world, going into the environment, and certainly going in storm drains because they fit through most most uh, protective grading. Uh, so that that's a big pet peeve for me. I'm really happy that you brought that up too, because you often hear about cigarette butts. So cigarette butts is my, my big litter problem that I, I think we um, can be, because so... I'm stumbling over my words a bit because I started thinking about this, how how many like big strides we made with uh, reducing our use of straws and reducing our use of plastic bags. And cigarette butts are still the biggest source of pollution that we're finding on our coastlines. And I walk down the streets of Boston every single day and I see people throwing these things on the ground. Um, and I am generally not a very confrontational person. So if there are listeners out there that know some ways and tactics, some communications tips uh, to, you know, interact with somebody that's throwing their cigarette butts on the ground um, that won't get me punched in the face by somebody on the street. <laughs> um, I, I would appreciate that if you could write that in. But I'm really glad that you brought up the lighters because that's something I, I don't hear about. And, you know, I focus on conservation work every single day. And I think it's really important for people to know these things. In Connecticut, on, on I-95, I call it the plastic belt. We have BIC headquarters is there. They're the biggest producers of these things besides the lighter, the pens, the razor blades. You have Gillette. You have Schick. You have Pez, the Pez Museum. I mean, it's, it's really insane. Uh, that we've accepted this kind of behavior. I've been in all kinds of department stores when I've been going up and down aisles to see the percentage of plastic in stores. It is mind-boggling to me. Uh, people ask me constantly when I wear my stuff, which is every single day, how do you paint the plastic? And as soon as I hear that term, how do I paint the plastic, I know I'm dealing with somebody who's just not present in their life. Because I look at them and I ask them, "Do you did, have you ever done your laundry?" And they go, "Yes, of course." And I say, "Well, do you use uh, 
a certain product? And what, and what color is that product's gallon of laundry, liquid, liquid laundry detergent? And they say orange. I say, well, that's impregnated from the beginning of the process from, from manufacturing. I don't do anything to the plastics. Uh, I use it as it comes. And it's, it's, it just speaks to me about people's disconnect to the whole thing. And we live in a world now where the disconnect is no longer about a disconnect. It's just never a connection. So we're having children, babies are being born in our world today in environments and cities where they basically never get to know nature. And I think this is one of the biggest problems in, in our, in our modern day world is that this unawareness of what nature is. Central park is nice, but to me, it's not nature. It's it's nice to have some trees and some open space, but it's it's limiting. It's it's been damaged. It's it's part of an environment that's urban, and it's good to have. And we need more parks, but to really get out and about into an area where there are running streams and no sound of water alone, and the uh, the idea of a storm, say after a, uh, along a coast, there's a there's a lot of times people say, "Daniel, you're so negative," and I'm like, I- "I'm not negative. You're just misunderstanding your own vocabulary." I say, "Well, have you ever been to get yourself a STD test for some sexually transmittable disease?" And they will go, mm, "Yeah," and I go, "Well, when the test came back negative, how'd you feel?" Oh, I see. Negative is positive, isn't it? <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay. Let's let's start talking about it. So when you go to the beach after a storm, the happy the happy ion is a negative ion. It's a negative ion that makes people happy when they go to the beach. And so there's this these there's a lot of people aren't thinking things through or understanding basic things. How does I had a very interesting guy talk to me about my stuff. I was trying to get an article in a in a, a series of magazines here. Um, around the tri-state area. And he said, how does plastic get into the ocean? And I was dumbfounded that I could even ask this question. I said, do you understand the topography of the earth? People don't understand the topography of the earth. Everything is in Westport, Connecticut at the time, is at sea level. It's on, it's, it's on Long Island Sound. It's literally right there. And I mean, storm drains are along 95, are right by Long Island Sound, um, driving your car and rubber off your tire. It's already broken down into microplastics. It's going right into the storm drain. No one considers rubber or any of the wear and tear on bicycles, sneakers. When you talk about fashion, the I mean, it's insane the amount of rubber shoes that are people people are wearing. Those are all types of plastic debris that are worn out. I use a lot of brooms in my artwork. Every broom I find, and there are a lot of brooms out there, they're plastic. It's sort of self-defeating. I'm cleaning the environment while I wear out the broom into <laughs> microplastic. Yeah, it's just a circle. Um, it's a never-ending cycle. I look at it to this degree. No one is getting up in the morning and go, I got to go clean in front of the house. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to be sweeping and I'll be, I'll be making microplastics. I walk by and I look at the guy and I go, idiot, you're making microplastics. Go get a natural broom. It's not that more expensive. Yeah. And I think it's just something that a lot of people don't think about. And that's where we all have a lot of work to do um, in educating folks that are not as 
um, either involved or interested or well-versed in plastics and conservation, because I also get that question a lot. You know, people see the headlines that are like plastics everywhere. They see the bag bands, the straw bands, and they, you know, they're like, how did we get here? And that's, that's a welcome opportunity though, to, to educate them. That's how I see that, you know, is let's bring this person into the fold and meet them where their education level is and try to build from there. We got here because of uh, a couple of things. Convenience is one of them. Uh, we got mm-hmm. here because the food chain is broken. We got here because people be- have become very complacent. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed by Costco's size of their shopping carts and the size of, <laughs> the size of chairs, folding chairs and tables. I mean, those are directly proportional to the plastic problem. Plastic and food, they go hand in hand. What's leaching, what's not leaching, how fats hold on to uh, uh plastic molecules, how we see this now in, in plankton up the food chain. We're eating it. We know that now. That's a fact. Uh, but we've been eating it a long time. They just really realize now that it's for real. Um, and so it's, 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 it's epidemic. It's to, for me, the debris problem is a human rights crisis. And it's, it's out of control. Uh, and it, it fringes on my well-being. And it fringes on my well-being. That means that I can't function as well as I, I, I would like. And if I'm and I'm in pretty good shape, if I if it's if it's, you know, an issue for me, and I look at somebody who may be medically obese and have conditions that are medical, but there are also people who are out of control. So they're they're. Their mindlessness about who they are as people and getting back to being mindful about yourself and how it affects the environment, you're impacting every single thing you do that's affecting the environment. Your purchases, the way you live, how you drive, uh, how many times you drive, if you're walking and not walking, using a bike, whatever. It's every single decision changes the direction of the world. I was told that directly by Deepak Chopra to my face. And and uh, I had a chance to speak with him once privately. And that's what he said to me. Every decision that is made changes the direction of the universe that we live in. And that's pretty profound. So when you're shopping and that thing you're going to buy has got five layers of packaging, put it back. The, the message that you send to manufacturers is the most important thing. If you don't, if there's no demand, they'll start changing their formulation. Absolutely. Start, Consumer demand right. is going to, it shapes the direction that, that companies go in and the products that they offer. We have the technology, we have the science. Uh, it's, it's just a matter of really honing it down to a, to a, uh, to a, place where it's profitable. It's not there yet. And so you have hemp, you have this thing going on with avocado seeds in Mexico that I, I've come across. These are very exciting things happening out there. Um, but it's not to the point where the demand is. And then there's retooling. There's a That's a big issue for a lot of companies. How can these plastics may not work with the tooling that's out there. So that's a really gigantic cost to, to offset for a lot of manufacturers. And, and that may be looked down upon by these folks. Um, sharing economies, circular economies, loop economies, all these things that help. And so there's nothing that is too small to do. It's just a matter of expanding upon it in a very, very big way. And I think it has to be more radical. It has to be... Uh, very quick. 
I mean, it, it's 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 frightening, uh, as you know, what you see and what I see. We just are seeing it in different places. It's 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 it looks like to me on garbage day, at least in Brooklyn, that something went crazy. Somebody went crazy, and the amount of trash in the in the clear bags alone, the plastic, the ones that go into uh, the plastic that goes into the clear bags, and what I see. Yeah, it's almost like so when I when I see trash day here in Boston or you know, I'll walk down the street and and inevitably the cans are gonna get knocked over and there's just piles of trash in certain locations. And it's like a little piece of my soul dies because you know, everybody just continues along walking by it, walking around it, and um it's just sort of blends into the background of everyday life when um, it's, that's a major concern. If even one bin dumps over and then it all washes out into the Harbor. Um, and I also think what your point that you were just making gets back to the whole, um, you know, they have a name for it. So the nature deficit disorder, um, where folks are not getting outdoors as much as, um, we should, um, for health reasons, I think it just really gets back to our primal form of who we are as human beings and our, um, our natural desire to, to be outside and experience nature. And a lot of people do not get that anymore. And I'm wondering if, um, what have you noticed about the communities in and around New York city? Are they aware of the plastic pollution problem and are, are there major efforts to reduce it like bag bans and straw bans and there's styrofoam ban in New York City. The bag bans. Uh, Westport, Connecticut, is a leader in that. Liz Milwe and um, Gene Seidman uh, got rid of the plastic bag in Westport. That's sort of become the model for the state of Connecticut. So there's a, a Sustain. There's a there's a website called Sustain in out of Connecticut that's run by Annalise Paik. She is a she's a a shaker, a mover and shaker of all things sustainable. Um, the, this is a gigantic movement but it has to come a little bit it has it has to be a hard sell to children at least so that they know that there's a future um when i ask people to see i say to people when i'm wearing my artwork and i get stopped quite often what are you looking at and they they look at it and they say oh it's uh, i don't know i don't know what is it and then i start talking and i have a conversation i use my art and i use beauty as a way of ha- having a conversation I'm not around. I don't go around beating people up because they use plastic or consuming plastic. So then I have an opportunity to have this conversation. And I ask them, "What is it you're looking at?" And I go, "What you're looking at is are dead dinosaurs." And they look at me. I said, "It's plastic. It's based on crude oil, and it's over in the Middle East. And we have sent some kid from some inner city who can't get out of a situation, more likely a brown or a black." child to go get this stuff for us so they can fill the dollar stores in their neighborhoods. So a black single mom can go buy a colander to pass some pasta and that colander will last very short time and it'll be in the garbage and they'll go to the dollar store again and they'll buy another one. And the cycle, it's a very small slice of a microcosm of what's happening of a vicious cycle about crude oil. So this person goes to buy a piece of junk in a dollar store made of plastic so their child can go to a foreign country to take crude oil out of the land to ship it to either China or America to be processed into more junk. And this is this to me is insanity. This is insanity. And so 
uh, when I talk to that, when I speak to that, people think I'm the nutcase. And, and, and it's really kind of interesting to see their reaction. Because when you expand upon it and you look at the orange store, home, the home store that's orange, and you, you see the other store that's blue, and you go in and out of these stores, and you see the massive amounts of stuff, like why are they even selling laundry detergent in the big orange store? There's a, whole, there's a whole aisle of it now and all the other toxicants. So I, I like to tell people like, you know, the most democratic thing on the planet, the most democratic, doesn't care who you are, doesn't care. It's, 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 it's poisons, the poisons that are, 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 that are converging on us, that are coming uh, by, by bioaccumulation, these, all these things that are happening. You know, I, I became a state of Connecticut energy auditor to just see what the heck was going on. Uh, and I worked and I, I worked, I did like 20 audits and I thought the whole thing was insane. And I did it just to see what was going on in the, in the background. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is really quite, it's, it's really, it's out of control. People don't know. We're not living natural lives. Uh, of the food chain, I just did an art show in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, at an art space building here, and it was called Intersectional 5D. And intersectionalism came out of feminism. And it's about all these things that are coming out of person, uh, racism or sexism or whatever it is. And some people get a lot of different things because of who they are as people. When it came to me and asking me what, I, how I saw intersectionalism, I, I talked about water. I spoke to soil. I spoke to air. I spoke to food chains. And I spoke to food webs. And they're all messed up. They're all interlinked. They're all dependent upon each other. I am part of this story. I am part of the story. I am not outside the story. And I feel like human beings don't understand their own existence. I did not exist once. I'm here for a short time. And like, I want people to understand that this temporariness called Daniel Lanzalotta or Jenna Valente, we are just short periods of time. Our bodies are short periods of time. And in a short period of time for some people, they have caused a lot of damage. So much damage. And in like the saddest way, it is like the ultimate poetic justice, what's happening with the plastics working their way up the food chain. You know, we've created this problem and now it's coming right back to create problems for us. Right, because if you go into any convenience store, and I go into convenience stores just to see how inconvenient they are, <laughs> uh, and 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 I look at it, and I particularly the ones at gas stations, when I or 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 donut place or that has two D's, and I went to one not so long. You can ago. call people out too if you want. I don't know if you have like personal relationships with the no, Dunkin' Donuts I, around the street I, from me. With any of these folks. <laughs> I went to a Dunkin' Donuts that was built maybe eight years ago in mm -hmm. Southport on the border of Westport, Southport, Connecticut, coastal community. It was it was built from scratch. Uh, I have a, a very good background in, in construction. And so I go and I sit one morning in the back of the store, and I'm a trained chef, and I was in the raw food movement, and I was in the vegan thing, and I did all of those things. And I, I've taken nutrition classes, and I've got a first-level herbology background. And, and so I go sit one morning just to sit. And I'm like, this is insanity. 
This building was made from toxic materials. Mm -hmm. One whole wall is refrigeration that's cooling down plastic bottles with dead stuff in it. Uh, the food is dead. It's really plastic. Sugar is a sort of plastic, and corn syrup particularly. And so uh, and I start looking at the people coming in. And I'm like, oh, my God, these are little brown people from from South Central and South America who come from mountains, who's who's used to a densely rich nutrition. And and I'm thinking they're eating toxic waste. They're eating plastic. It's coming in plastic. It's being shipped in plastic. The carbon footprint that goes back to wherever the heck the stuff is coming from is plastic. The transportation system is plastic. The building is plastic. Everything everyone's wearing is plastic. Hello. Yeah, it's just all plastic. We are, we are folks, we are in trouble. Yes. That's what I'm saying. We're in trouble. I need to heal me. I need to heal my relations with my people, with my tribe, in my community. I need to heal this. I want my environment to be well. And I, I don't know how to get, express it any longer. I don't want to live in a, in a world or a city or a country where people feel hostile towards each other mm-hmm. and, and where there's this – it's a big country. We, we, there's plenty to go around. There's a better way to do this. There's a better way to do this and we need to do it and we need to do it soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to pivot into talking about garbage and art, because I feel like that is such an incredible tool that you have been using to communicate all of this to people. And I'm really excited to talk about it. And I would love for you to explain, because I know we've mentioned a couple of the projects that you've worked on, some of the things that you're working on, um, and where you source some of your materials from. But could you explain, you know, what is this project? What is Garbage in Art? Well, garbage, in, garbage in Art out comes from a, a, an adage that was applied to programming computers. Garbage in, garbage out. So I just took it and I put the word art. It sounded good. I went to Google. I got my email address, what have you. And so it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation. It's a way of having a conversation to people who are just not present. And there's a lot of it. I wear this stuff all the time. I, get, I was in a store getting a bagel and cream cheese last week in Brooklyn. And I went around the counter paid and then I had to go on the other side and a woman came in she was on crutches I didn't see what was going on she was at the other end ordering something and she looked pretty unhappy and she got to the checkout and she started smiling and she she came over to me and she says those pieces you're wearing are so beautiful and she started smiling and she was so happy and I touched her it turns out she was she was missing a leg and I looked down and I thought, wow, I touched somebody. I made someone smile. My plastic debris art made someone smile. And it happens every single day I wear it. And every day I have a conversation. And every day I can spend 20 minutes or more having a conversation about this. It's a way of opening the door from the back about what's happening. It's not, it's not, I don't, I don't get. I don't get too crazy about it. The craziest I've ever gotten was about two months ago in Brooklyn. A car pulled up alongside the road in downtown Brooklyn. A bag of garbage came flying out. 
landed on the curb. I went over, I picked it up, I threw it back at the car. (laughs) It landed on the guy's car, on his hood. Yeah. He pulls over, he gets out, and I go, yes. He goes, you got a problem? I said, no, I think you have the problem. I stood my ground. I wasn't going to back down. I said, dude, you don't come to my city and throw garbage out your window and think you can get a, get a, you're going to get yeah, away with it. Yeah, how disrespectful. And so that went on for about five minutes, and somebody out of the crowd said, won't you guys stop? I said, I'm, there's nothing to stop. He picked up the garbage and put in the garbage receptacle. Okay, that, that's, that's that. It's just, it's just a story about how dare you do that. Mm-hmm. And no one is willing to take that risk. Yes, I took a risk, and but I stood for something. And stand, you have to stand for something. And my art stands for something. It stands for something in its beauty, and it's attracting people and how they see it. And it goes back to how we see things, how we see each other. And it, it has it has to there has to be a shift in the consciousness about how we see objects and how we value objects. What is the value of buying this piece of junk and throwing it away? That's what it comes down to. What are you willing to pay now? And what are you willing to pay for in the future when someone you love is sick? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've made it so convenient for us not only to buy and throw away plastic and have it all over the place in packaging, you know, on our bodies and our food, um, but we've also done the same thing with water. And I yeah. I really would love to see us get to a place where we put the proper value on those plastic items and on water so we're not wasting the amount of water that people in westernized cultures tend to do um, because I really wholeheartedly believe that our next world war is going to be over water. And it's because we aren't valuing it in the way that we should. Well, it goes back to the same principle I spoke to earlier. It's about ourselves first understanding ourselves as human beings. We cry salt. We cry the ocean. What binds me to another man or woman who's different than me is so is so insignificant. The different that's what's different. The fact that their blood has iron in it, just like mine, that they cry tears of salt, just like mine. That's what binds us. It's the ocean. I'm when I cry, I cry the ocean, and and that's how I feel about it. That the ocean's within me. And and so I don't have to go very. I can go into the middle of the country and still cry salt tears. I take my ocean with me. And so if people are not aware and have the sensitivity for their own well-being to change their their perspective, to 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 have a conversation, I am so against people to- walking around going resist, resist, resist. Evidently, you never paid attention in physics mm-hmm. because. Resistance, there's friction. And when there's friction, there's heat. And when there's heat, there's energy lost. That's what we don't want in any circuit. We don't want to lose energy. We don't want heat. We want to get rid of the heat. That heat is causing a lot of problems. People don't realize every time they hit that button for Google, they're creating heat. That heat has to be dissipated. And that heat is is cooled down by by rivers that kill fish. Absolutely. And so when you, when you mentioned the, when you're like in a landlocked state thinking that, you know, you're not connected to the ocean, but you're crying tears of salt. Um, 
also, I mean, you're breathing air that came from the ocean and any body of water that you're around in inland states are flowing eventually out to the ocean. So it's always all connected. Exactly. That's the whole point. And, and th- that, that we, we're, we're unaware. We're unaware of our existence that we just go through time. We just go, we go, we just go through it. We're, we're, we're mechanical about it. And so when one becomes aware of one's being or how one lives or what choices one makes, that's where the shift of consciousness goes. That's how we clean the environment that I believe the environment will clean itself. If we have that kind of, you know, like a, like this mega giant, um, kind of leap of of consciousness yeah and i also think the this is kind of morbid but i think the environment will clean itself whether or not humans are along for the ride or not that's a fact (laughs) that's that's the sad part yes it's interesting because that's that's the other thing you know we need the planet and the planet really doesn't need us it doesn't even know we're here yeah and 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 uh the fact that when I go out into the world and I'm bombarded, see the other other thing about the way urban settings are, or settings in general, strip malls, whatever, cement and its issues of producing cement, uh, or 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 paving the roads with petrochemical tars and aggregates and all this crazy stuff that runs off, and then you have the crazy people who want to grind up plastic and build roads with it. I say you're nuts mm-hmm. because you already broken down the plastic to this micro stuff and you're putting it in the roads it still has to wear away and it's going to go directly into the storm drains it's even faster and so don't do that don't use plastic that's the end of the story for me it's don't use it so i also i always enjoy hearing about people's creative process because i feel like everybody finds inspiration and creates in their own way could you walk me through your workflow when you're creating these pieces and what the creative process is like for you? I am a kid in the candy store. I get excited as hell when I see a piece of plastic that I that speaks to me. Um, I see things in things and I think and I collect it. And my 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 pockets are always full of plastic parts. I happen to have a pickup truck, which is a big thing because it can hold a lot of stuff. And there have been times where I, I had so much stuff, I had to unload the stuff to bring it to the dump. It's sort of like, you know, ironic that I have to collect stuff and then I can't use it because I have too much of the stuff because it's it's never ending. It's never ending. The stuff never stops. And so the process is uh, I see something, I hold on to it. I start breaking it down into parts and pieces that I'm going to use. I make little tiny parts if I'm making a, a brooch or something or a sculpture. So everything is um, in units. And I start making these pieces and I hold on. Sometimes I hold on to a part that I've made or sitting in public. I mostly work in public. I don't have a studio where I go to. I don't have a shop. So everything is kind of done right there out out in the open or somewhere in a cafe or tucked away somewhere. And I just make these things and I start collecting them and I put them in cases. And then I sit down one day when I go, oh, look, that that looks like that's going to be this or that's going to. And I start building these things. And then they start to unfold. Sometimes it's a challenge and they, they give me a hard time and I, I have these, these battles with the piece. And then eventually it starts to come together and I have a piece and it speaks to me. It becomes a piece of art. And then I start wearing it. I start 
trying to have a show with it. And it's, it just takes on a life of its own. It's been an incredible journey, um, uh, which I hope just gets better and better and better and that I get into more and more galleries around the world. That's really where I'm trying to get my stuff. I'm trying to get my stuff into galleries in Tokyo, London. I want to be by water. I want, I want to be in cities and places where there's water because that's the attachment I have with the stuff. It, it has to be close to a body of water. It doesn't have to be an ocean. It's nice if it is, and it's nice that it's not. Uh, um, I just want people to be aware through the beauty and have a conversation and know that their choices are really what's driving what's out there. It's, it's a personal growth thing for me. It's getting along with other human beings and, and having healings. I, I would like us to heal. There's a lot of stuff in our culture in America that is has been swept under the rug, and namely, that's the story of slavery and the pain that's associated with that. We need a massive healing among us. It's, it's, it's out of control. I see it all the time. I'm very, very involved in the black community. Um, I spend a tremendous amount of time in the black community, and I know and feel the pain. Uh, and we need to fix that. We need to heal that. Because when we have healings, we'll have healings in the environment. I think it goes hand in hand without a doubt. What's happening in the environment is a reflection of who and what we are. And who and what we are is a reflection of what's happening in the environment. They're, they're not separable. And so once we are on that path to understand the trouble that we're in and the way to fix it or at least start on a path to make it better, is through oneself and then growing into sharing and being with other people and forget the resistance. You want conductivity. Mm-hmm. When you have conductivity with another human being, you're on a path to healing. The opposition and the current administration in this country wants you to resist because it will wear you out. Absolutely. When, when you are conductive with another human being, that's what they don't want. You have a conversation with somebody you don't like. You have a conversation with someone who doesn't look like you. When you understand this one principle, human beings are all different. All human beings are just a different expression of who you are. That's it. That's all it is. And that's who that's what another human being is. And that's what all of life is. It's our responsibility as artists and conservationists and environmentalists to bring that to the attention. We have to activate uh, change. And that's what I would like my work to, I think my work does. And it does it because people smile and are happy about my art. My art is very happy and it's happy using one of the worst things on the planet, plastic. It's poison. And I take that poison and make it look very happy, very cheerful and people respond to it. And that to me is powerful. And I would like for that to be out in the world in a very, very, very big way that I know in the short time that I'm here as a temporary human being, that I made a difference. Absolutely. I think that you, you were spot on with everything that you just said. And that's a major frustration that I have um, with where we have found ourselves as a community, as a country right now with being so polarized is we find ourselves preaching to the choir all the time and um, surrounding ourselves with people that are exactly like us and we're not making progress in the ways that we need to because we're not having those difficult conversations and realizing that we're all human at the end of the day, you know? Uh, yes, 
I know that. I know that. And I know that I know as an American, I love being an American. It's the best. And I love being an American because I have all these other people around me. I have all colors and nationalities and it's just, it's, it, I'm a, I'm a culture fanatic and I want to know this other person, how they think, what they speak, what they cook, what they're eating, how they do something. I can, I, it's, it's just a treasure chest of, 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 of learning and that we have an opportunity in this culture to really live up to what we say, what's on that Statue of Liberty. What's happening with children and being separated from their parents is outrageous. It, it's, 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 to me, it speaks to what the problem is. Mm-hmm. If you're not outraged by that, then how could you deal with the environment? Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to blend these together. You know, these are children. These are children. And they're never going to forget this. This is a massive problem. And that consciousness about conductivity among us, that's where the power is. Resistance is just going to wear you out. They don't want that. They, they, they want you to be worn out. They do not want you and I to have this conversation we're having now. Yeah, because we'll realize that we're not so different, you and I, when we develop a deeper understanding of our beliefs and our backgrounds and how we work. And, um, you know, that's how you find the middle ground. Right. And so plastic, plastic debris and my process and art, it's a soft cell. It's beautiful. It's lovely to look at. It attracts people like you can't believe. The, you, I mean, it's insane sometimes how many people come up to me in a day or if I go out. I went to the Rubin Museum last week or a week, two weeks ago for an opening of First Fridays. It was free. Uh, I, wa- I walked in wearing my stuff. And it was just unbelievable that I could have this kind of engagement. I, could, I just have to stand somewhere. I go to the First Saturdays at the Brooklyn Museum, I do the same thing. I don't have to, I don't have to move. You know what's really amazing about that too? And I'm sorry I cut you off, but uh, the fact that people are even coming up and speaking to you is, I consider that a major win because I think people get so into their phone and isolating themselves and that having a conversation with a stranger is, is rare now that I think it's amazing. This is also an issue because p- those folks who are who are buried into their plastic device are, <laughs> are, are you know, it's, it's plastic. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of story behind the technology and the precious metals and the rare earth kinds of things that go into it. You know, it's a it's a really big, complicated story, all of this. And we have to pay closer attention on to how it's all happening. Uh, there are people who are being left on the wayside. Um, that's that's what the story is. We have to come to our senses. It's it's out of control, and when I see litter, I I see how how mindless we are about ourselves, and that's what litter is. When I read once that most ocean debris is land based, I thought to myself, "Wow, that really took a lot of thinking to figure that out." How did, how now how did well that yeah of course it's land based. Where is a plastic bottle coming from? <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah, the PhD, that's all pretty, and I love all that, and it's good. Science is fantastic. But to tell me that is really kind of ridiculous. We know that. Uh, we need to become more sensitive 
sensitive to what's happening. We need to stop trying to, uh, the studies are great, but they take too long. While we're studying everything, the plastic and the fossil fuel industry has shipped 400,000 widgets across the ocean to put into the dollar stores and various other places. And we, we shop and buy objects not for the value and the quality, but for the price. We've become price-driven animals. You know, I got this for that amount of money. Yes, but it lasts two minutes. It falls apart. It comes in a flat pack from another giant store that's called Ikea. And the off-gassing in those places. And there's a, there is some kind of movement, and I get a feeling that there is some kind of uh, awareness now about changing those paradigms. Maybe Trader Joe's is going to get rid of all their plastic packaging. Uh, you know, um, Starbucks went and got rid of the straw, but they made a They a just cover. made a cover that might be more plastic than the straw right. was. Right, right. <laughs> this is like, okay, we're, there are designers out there designing stuff, and there's a lot of talent in this planet. There's a lot of talent in this country. You live in one of the most incredible education-driven cities in the world. Mm-hmm. You have MIT, you have Harvard, you have all these incredible places where people are going there to study all of these issues. And I'm, I'm sitting back going, well, there's a lot of brain power out there, but I'm not seeing the results at the rate we need to see them. That's you true. Know? And I also think that ties back to people with that brain power are often going to follow where the big dollars are and who's paying them um, for their careers and their salaries. And as much as I love... Working in the conservation field, it is not necessarily the uh, biggest money maker. No, it's not. <laughs> so. Within all these fields, I see this with a lot of the ocean folks. You know, I'm not competing with anybody. Mm-hmm. I go about my work totally privately. I just do my thing, and I go out and I try to make this happen. So I get a lot of. I get sometimes some some talk from people and i'm like no i'm not competing i'm not i don't compete with other artists i'm not competing with anybody but within the fields of conservation and environmentalists there seems like there's like either it's a fun driven thing about funds or or some other ego thing uh at the end of the day when the whole thing is just blowing up in our face it's won't we won't be sitting there going you were right i was wrong or you know you didn't get funding. I did. Uh-huh. It's really, it's really about what it's one planet. It's one planet and it's one race. And so when we get, when we transcend these ideas about dividing ourselves up and, 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 and borders and walls and this type of insanity where money could be appropriated for the proper things to clean up brownfields or clean water in Detroit or clean water in New Jersey or clean water in Boston. It's every, this, this issue of what happened in Flint is the same issue that's happening in every community where there's drinking water. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not isolated to this one place. This is, this is a global crazy issue and the right to have clean water. I mean, it's it's really out of control. Yeah, and to sit back and think that it won't happen again and it's not happening again somewhere else is uh, not doing us any favors because we aren't even taking care of Flint right now. We know about it and we're not really doing much about it. We're, you know, they're running out of funding. And uh, yeah, and I, I just think that it's pretty backwards of us to not even think about this is happening, still happening there. And it's going to be, it's happening in other places around the world and around the country. 
There is there. I I, I don't I don't want to be Mr. Gloom and Doom, <laughs> uh, but I, I I do believe there is a shift of consciousness happening around major urban areas, and then that drifts out into small communities, and it's global, and the internet is connecting that. But the same things that make us connected are also the things that are messing things up. Mm-hmm. And I see I see these I see there are so many com- computers in the trash. There are so many flat screen TVs in the environment. I mean it's 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 really kind of an irony to see that this the, the very thing that could help us a cell phone is the very thing that is also causing such damage and how we how how we're so driven by the new device the new thing when in some countries just having a phone a flip phone is a major step forward or i mean even and just I, having clean water clean water yeah. i mean hey great example because i know that one because i've been there and to see how people live there and 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 the and the people there are just the most beautiful people on the planet and how they how they do so much with so little and the water down there and how they burn plastics and and how there's no sanitation but they they have great dignity and they and they try to they try to live their lives with that and, and there's a lot to be learned there's this, there is a shift of consciousness i do believe that is making things better but it has to be it has it has to be a little bit more pushed it has to be a little bit yeah a little more with haste (laughs) there's a a, there are things that are happening all day long and we just go about it because when we're 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 just living because it's normalized yeah Yeah. and so i heard you mention a couple places that you would like to see your work featured in but i'm wondering where are some places that people can learn about your work and view your work now well the the instagram facebook uh we just made a little video of my stuff I'm working on a show that's going to open up in Harlem in mid-April. Uh, there'll be a little pop-up in Harlem on the 22nd, I believe. I just got word about that. Uh, I'm trying to put a show up in a, a gallery called Expressiones in New London, Connecticut, uh, which is a coastal community and a very important coastal community, in, in my opinion, because of the nature of what's around there, uh, of what happens in that that community. Um with, in terms of the military uh, things that happen yeah, there. Yeah, the Coast Guard uh, Academy is there, correct? You have uh, Groton, I think it's called. Oh, They're, yeah. They make uh, very specialized submarine. There's a nuclear reactor there somewhere along the coast. Uh, that, that's a very kind of precarious place for me. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very funky. It's, it, it speaks to another time. So it has a, there's a lot of potential there to have a statement about uh, what's happening. And I, I'd like to see that show happen. I just got offered a show there and I have to follow up. I sent them all my information and hopefully that'll happen because that's the kind of place that has uh, Connecticut uh, colleges there, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a very, very good school. So when you have, when you have this kind of mix of, uh, of, of funkiness and then a very, uh, you know, deep, rooted educational foundation or, you know, a college like Connecticut college that, that speaks to me because there's, there are people there who have an ex- expertise and an education to, to latch onto this and to, to further this along in a way that isn't happening, uh, at least in the mainstream. So we need, we need, we need the, we need a lot of deep thinkers. We need scientists. We need people, artists, uh, to further this along in a way that I feel it's not going fast enough. And so on social media platforms, you are just Daniel Lanzalotta. Is that where people can find you? Yes, that's uh, where I, I, I 
post most of my artwork. And then there's uh, Leap Foods, which is my food uh, page. And then there's a thing called Eugene and Renee Poubelle earrings, which stems out of the artwork. Uh, I started making earrings from debris, and they, they just kind of took on a life of their own. Uh, and what's interesting about those earrings is that they're made 100%, except for the actual loop that goes into a pierced ear from from trash. And so that gets cleaned and sanitized, and I make these these crazy wacky uh, items. And I sold a pair to a woman in Brooklyn some last summer, and I said, "You're going to have like 20 people come up to you, and you're going to have conversations, and that's your that's your chance." That's your chance to be part of this activation. And so uh, so the jewelry becomes a, me- a mechanism for me to have a conversation. It's just another way of, of having a conversation. It has to be about people engaging and talking and having conductivity. That's where the power is. Mm-hmm. And uh, power is P equals E times I. That's power. And, and power is the ability to get something done. It's physics. And so when you have power, you are able to get something done. And so in resistance, there is no power. It's a loss of power. And that's where we have to act. We have to, we have to use our, our words, our podcast, our art, our writings, our music, our drumming, our dancing to convey a message that this can't go on anymore. It has to stop. And it has to stop, again, for me, it's by individual, by individual, by individual, by individual. And that's the conductivity that you have, not resistance. And so uh, th- if there's a paradigm thing I'd like to change, it would be that, to, to, to engage other human beings in a conversation about making social change that's real. And that forgiveness and, 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 and deciding on purchasing power uh, and how you utilize that. And if it's the smallest thing, if you go into a convenience store at any gas station, uh, the car outside, the fossil fuel is the same stuff inside. Nothing in there is for real. It's all driven by fossil fuels. The packaging, the shipping, the manufacturing, the junk food, the stuff in, in, in plastic bottles. That's what a convenience store is. It's a it's a it's a place by inconvenience. And if you're not paying if you if you're paying at one end, you're gonna certainly pay big time at the other end in some form or fashion, either by getting rid of the stuff or being sick. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to all of the listeners out there, you are definitely gonna wanna check out all of his artwork because it is beautiful. It's colorful. It's abstract. And I feel like everyone is so different from the next that it's really fun to follow along with everything that you're creating. Thank um, you. They're really interesting. Thank you so you're much. welcome. And um, I would like to pivot for like one second just to talk about yeah. the culinary art stuff, which I feel like could be a whole nother show with oh, yes. just like sustainability um, that, but how, you know, yeah, I'm, I would like to know how you're using the culinary arts to raise awareness about environmental issues and sustainability. It's, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, I hired a, a public relations person and I, I was trying to get them to understand that as a chef, um, that I, I have, a, I have an ability through the artwork that I've, I've, I've set up, uh, 
I'm not where I want to be with the artwork yet, but I am. I there are communities around the world uh, uh, who know what I do. I'm known basically in every part of the world in some community about my work. It just needs to be dealt with in a certain way. That's an ability and a power to speak to what I love, and that's food. And food, one of our main resources, is the ocean at so many levels for so many people. And it's getting worse and worse. So my ability as an environmental artist and a, and a chef is to speak to the conditions of not just the ocean, but to lakes. We're finding plastic in salt. It's salt and crystals of salt. That should say something to us. That's that's gigantic. Mm-hmm. That's that's profound. That's like it's not even it, that concept. When I started reading and started looking into it, the idea that there are plastic microplastics in salt crystals, I thought, wow, that's that's mind-boggling. You know, I went to an event recently where a professor from. I think it was UConn. It was definitely a university in Connecticut or a college in Connecticut. Um, But he was studying oysters and mussels and clams and all different kinds of bivalves um, to see what the effect of plastic pollution is on them because they're filter feeders. And he had this amazing footage that I have not been able to track down yet, but would really love to get my hands on of um, a mussel filtering water and you could see these little pieces of microfibers working through its body. Um, and it was just so shocking to see that I was like, I can't believe that this footage isn't out in a more public fashion. Um, do you know Frankie and Cuso? I do not. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link. He's probably the person you want to look into. Uh, he's mind boggling. Yeah, <laughs> mind boggling what this man uh, I can't remember his book, but he he it's it's staggering his his wealth of information about this very topic and and, 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 and marine that life. That would be great. I'd appreciate that. And I, I so think that this is also a really great opportunity for us to get uh, to use you and some of your expertise on, um, you know, not only the plastic stuff, but food sustainability and thinking about some ways that we can all be a little bit more mindful with our food choices. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions of how people can do that. I became a vegetarian when I was eight years, 18 years old. And I, I maintained that lifestyle for a good 33 years. I am not far behind you. I became a, uh, well, I guess I am far behind you in the time scale, but I became a vegetarian when I was 19 so it's been about 10 years now. And, and that, that, that decision wasn't based on anything like animal rights or anything. It's just I, lo- I started looking at meat. It was an advertisement by Roy Rogers Beef. I, I was watching TV and the guy was telling me how, uh, how I should eat roast beef and how you know, wonderful it was. And I should go to Roy Rogers fast food places. And I looked at the ad and I thought, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. I'm not eating meat anymore. (laughs) So at dinner that night, I made an announcement to my parents that I was a vegetarian now. My father looked at me and says, oh, you'll be eating meat in two weeks. (laughs) 33 30, maybe 35, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm a little older, but it's, it went by and I started eating meat again for uh, B12 and to help me out. But it was, it was, and I'm still, I still feel very like, I still feel more vegetarian than I do anything else. I still don't eat any beef. I 
chicken is just like a, a no-no to me and shrimp forget about mm-hmm. it um, uh, so it's a matter of choice. Uh, it's a very sensitive issue for a lot of people, uh, especially among vegans and people like that. And it's, it's never really good to start forcing your lifestyle down somebody else's throat. And that's no pun intended. Uh, so it's a matter of being gentle about it and, and acting out your own lifestyle. And if people are into it, they're into it. People are going to eat the way they see fit. And so some of the choices, it's a, and it's a big choice. Meat is killing the environment. There's no doubt about it. The amount of trees that are chopped down for grazing is insane. Uh, corn, the corn base, the corn, the whole corn industry is nuts. And the water usage. Uh, the water usage. I mean, cotton. I mean, cotton alone. You can you can go on and on and on and on. There's many aspects of all of this and how how it's interwoven into how things work. The fossil fuel industry, the the pesticides industry, the the um, um, the, the, the you know everything that makes food grow that's based on fossil fuel. Uh, is, is all tied into making you sick. So you're not really, you're not really eating, you're eating to get sick. And so people have to come to a decision about that donut. What does that donut represent? It will satisfy you for a certain amount of time, but it also make you sick. Uh, how, how, how much is too much? You know, I'm not a, I'm not a person to have restrictions like deep, deep restrictions about something, you have to make a personal choice. And those personal choices will have impacts uh, on, on, on the rest of everything. Packaging alone, uh, the zero waste movement that uh, we're involved with here in, in Connecticut in, uh, next weekend at the Wilton High School. Um, I'm with Peter, uh, who has an organization called Unfold Creative, uh, where, where I'm now using his computer. We're building uh, a tiny house. We're going to be building a greenhouse, a tiny greenhouse that's in the process right now, just to show people what the possibilities are. And this is all upcycled materials. So everything is tied in together. Food is a massive part of the, of the equation in, the, in those choices. I, I don't advocate eating meat. I do on occasion, but not beef. Um, I think that to understand, you have all you have to do is take one item. Look at the beef industry. Look at milk. Look at look at how animals are treated. Animal husbandry in this country is pretty awful. Uh, look at how animals are, are, are caged and mistreated. That those are all disturbing things, and those things have to be personal. Uh, people get really uptight about this the subject, and they don't really want to be told what to do. If they come along in their own lives and through their own decision making, and you just open a door for them, that's where it should be. Nothing more than that. Just let people discover on their own what their needs are and they come to a decision about how they want to eat food. Uh, you can go to any grocery store in America. It's a scary situation. Um, just just the, the, the plastic wrap on meat alone and the styrofoam containers that hold meat um, and how meat bleeds into these things and bacteria, that should freak you out right there. Um, and the handling systems, how those handling systems are not really always abided by and how people treat food. It's a consciousness. We're still in it in the infancy in this culture about food culture and understanding what it is. I went to a thing at NYU some couple years ago. There was, um, uh, it was, it was a meetup group of, of people about, uh, 
food and, and science. And there was a, a, I forget her name. She was a, a PhD professor studying cheeses at Harvard. I don't know if the cheese lab is still there, but she came down to NYU to give a class. And the study was about mold and bacteria on cheeses. They wouldn't let her send back samples to her lab at Harvard because of the molds. So she would have to freeze dry the samples in the country she was in, in of those origins of cheese, ship them back and study the molds that way. And she said at the time that with all the molds and bacteria that they found on cheeses, there is no documentation to say that people got sick from that. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Those cheeses and those molds and, and how they look, and it's kind of scary when you look at it, right? Mm-hmm. So in our culture, our, our culture dictates that, that it has to be pristine. And if an apple or a banana has a bruise on it, it has to be discarded. And that waste, they say, is up to 40% to residential food waste. Uh, that's insanity because that's just part of the issue. That's the food that's not the trucking. That's not the packaging. That's not all the cottage industries that got that food to that location that you went and got and you're throwing it out. That's not the refrigeration cost to keep it cold or frozen. That's not, in the, that's not even in the calculation. Yeah, there's just so much more that goes into it. And I feel like the central theme that we keep circling back to during this conversation is convenience and price. You know, that's, that's all that, that is. At the, yeah. That's at the source of so many of our, our problems. Right. And if you go to these big, you know, brick and mortar places where they have these big giant shopping carts and you go in and you see the size of the facility just to have the store. I mean, that alone should freak you out. I mean, the heating and the cooling and, and, and people showing up. And they're not just selling food, but they're selling all kinds of crazy things. And the clothes thing, the fashion industry. And I think the fashion industry is starting to realize that there is a massive problem with microfibers and how to capture that stuff. Well, yeah, or, fast fashion, too. But, you know, yeah, I always fast- think about when I go into places, even grocery stores, but, like, we were talking about Costco's and places like that, like – what if somebody came into this building that was from a third world country and had never seen something like that? And, you know, every day they're trying to find like water, clean water, sustenance. And then they walk into this big department store and think about how much of that is going to go to waste. And we have more than we'll ever be able to use or need. Um, it's right. pretty overwhelming. Right. And that's the story of, of understanding oneself and then understanding others and, and, and starting that relationship to make that re- those relationships better, mm-hmm. to engage with those other human beings. And maybe that person might need to have to meet me. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I would say, where did you come from? I came from a mountain in Peru. The mountains of Peru were very poor. And I would say, are you happy? Are you happy there? Because when you look at all the stories, especially among African Americans and the stories of slavery in the and, and the and the, and the Middle Passage and slave ships and what happened there, if you start thinking about that story in a modern sense, just in in America, say, 
with the divorce rate. When a family, when a, when a couple, a married couple gets divorced, and there are children involved, how that breaks up that tribe and the and the and and the fallout from that is is horrendous and it's horrible and it's painful. Now take that and now multiply that by a couple of hundred million times. That's what slavery was, mm-hmm. because that's what happened. You, we broke up tribes. We took families apart. We ripped languages apart. We took the drum from people. We took the beat. We took their souls. And we, we, we've shattered so many things. And now, just now, just now, 400 years later, it's 400 years this year, this June, is 400 years of slavery. And, and to rebuild that, that's, that's amazing. We, we owe the African-American community so much. Yes, we do. I'm an, I'm an American. I'm an American, but I'm not an American without that. Mm-hmm. And I am insulted when you have Black History Month. I'm sorry, but I'm an American and Black History is every day in America. Yes. I actually was just talking about that recently, how it's every day. Um, and same thing with Women's History Month. Same exact thing. It is, of course, it's nice to have a specific time to be recognized, but that needs to be something that's recognized every single day. Lady Liberty, it's not... It's not Mr. It's not Mr. Liberty. It's the Statue of Liberty. She's a woman. She's out there. I mean, the whole story is convoluted and twisted and demented. We have to start looking more at the people who are, or the indigenous things that we destroyed through slavery or the migrations from the South or the migrations from South America and the shamans and the medicines and the herbs and the and the plants. The plants want to help us. When you when 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 I I look at what happens with Roundup and and and, and Monsanto and that insane group of people um, and and all the all these these types of companies um, and they tell me about weeds. Weeds, for the most part, are are medicine. And, <laughs> yes, and, I... and, and when you tell me that that little dandelion and 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 and, and is is a threat to my lawn. Yeah. Well, the, I'm sorry, but. It's really a beautiful, beautiful herb, and it's medicine. The root, the leaves, everything about it is the flower is all medicine. That goes across the board for so many things. That's the reawakening that we need because when you have that kind of medicine, you will eliminate the -the over-the-counter trash and garbage that we've been That we're poisoning ourselves with. I agree 100%, and that's a conversation I have with a lot of my – that's a fossil fuel driven yeah. industry. The pharmaceutical companies are no different than the big oil companies. It's all driven by fertilizer. It's all it's driven all money. by oil. Yeah. It's all driven by crude oil. That's what I said about the dollar stores. That poor black mom in, in, in Bedford Stuyvesant or Trenton, New Jersey, or or Newark or wherever, right here in Bridgeport. Goes to the dollar store to buy a piece of junk to send their son over to get more crude oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought all of that up because that's a conversation that I've had a, a bunch of times of like, who gets to decide what a weed is just because it's an eyesore that doesn't it doesn't deserve to be there? Uh, and then also when you think about like perfectly manicuring your lawns and mowing your grass, you're taking away habitat for wildlife. Uh, right, and 
that's right. And so again, getting back <coughs> to to some of these things that I spoke to earlier about the cement thing and 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 how we how cities are set up and the runoff. The, I mean, the runoff from buildings and roofs and and sidewalks and roads. It's just a pathway. It's a really nice pathway for all toxicants, all plastics, all accumulating in in our drainage systems that flow all to the ocean. Everything that ever exists or is out there will eventually be trash, and it's all heading towards the ocean. And if people don't understand that topography, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Daniel, before we wrap up, I would like to know what are you hopeful for moving forward? I, I like to, uh, for my, my own personal level, I need to heal. I need to heal with others. And in that healing, other beautiful things will happen. And that, that healing that I, I hold for myself, I hold that others will have healings for themselves and that, each of us puts an effort into producing and using less toxic toxicity, not just within plastics, but what comes in those plastic bottles. Those pl the plastic bottles themselves are a nightmare, but a lot of the stuff that is in the bottle itself is a nightmare, and that's going down the drain. And cleaning products, hair care products, beauty products, all of that. So it's a consciousness of less use or no use. And that's where the answers lie. Um, it's, it's a really hard thing to tell someone not to do something. So it's, it's a matter of, uh, a, it's a slow, slow process. And that my artwork is out in the world in a bigger, m more productive way in every corner of the world where there's a waterway ocean. That's where I'd like to be. I'd like to be out there speaking to it at artist talks about my vision of what my art represents, and that um, that these opportunities come at, come from it, from podcasts like this, that people hear it, and that I'm invited to speak about these things. Uh, there are many there are many things out there that aren't being addressed and overlooked, or just in denial. There's a lot of denial out there, mm -hmm. and uh, it's time that we wake up. I, I really think that we're at a crisis. We're, we're, for me, it's a it's a humanity crisis. It's a human issues crisis. It's a human rights crisis. We have a right to clean air. We have a right to clean water. We have a right to clean soil. The food chain, the food webs, they're, they're all independent, interconnected, and they're poisoning each other. That's what's happening. And so that that this podcast, for instance, is, is out there and people hear it and that they, they have a, a, um, an epiphany. Wow, I didn't think of it that way. Not using that broom to sweep up I'm creating microplastics from a broom. It's sort of an ironic idea and that this all comes together. But it, I really think that we need to be a little bit more diligent. It has to be a little bit faster yeah. <laughs> than what's happening. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. And this, is, this was a very important conversation to have and so energizing. And I thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with me and our listeners. I really appreciate it. I learned something. I know everybody listening is going to learn something and hopefully participate in a conversation about it. And this might spark some new ideas and lively conversations. Um, so this was fantastic. And I, I'm just so thankful for you joining me today. Thank you for having me. 
And I'd also like to take the time to thank the listeners for tuning in. Um, And if you liked what you heard and want to hear more of this show and other outstanding content from my fellow hosts on the network, please subscribe to and rate and review the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, be sure to like the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook and Twitter because this is where you can interact with us and have a conversation about this show and other shows. Um, You can also submit feedback or give me recommendations for inspiring people that you would like me to invite on as guests. I'm always open to suggestions. And then if you would like to interact with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Yenna Benna, it's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. And then on Instagram, it's the same thing, but there are three N's in the Yenna. And I welcome you to find me on those platforms. Let's discuss the ocean and whatever else is on your mind. I thank you again for listening and I look forward to the next 10 episodes and beyond. 